Volume 1, Chapter 6, Part 1 of The Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hayden McAuliffe. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Volume 1, Chapter 6, Part 1. This is, perhaps, a fitting time to give some personal description of Miss Bronte. In 1831, she was a quiet, thoughtful girl of nearly fifteen years of age, very small in figure, stunted was the word she applied to herself, but as her limbs and head were in just proportion to the slight, fragile body, no word in ever so slight a degree suggestive of deformity could properly be applied to her. With soft, thick brown hair and peculiar eyes of which I find it difficult to give a description as they appear to me in her later life. They were large and well shaped, their colour a reddish brown, but if the iris was closely examined it appeared to be composed of a great variety of tints. The usual expression was of quiet listening intelligence, but now and then on some just occasion for vivid interest or wholesome indignation a light would shine out, as if some spiritual lamp had been kindled which glowed behind those expressive orbs. I never saw the like in any other human creature. As for the rest of her features, they were plain, large and ill-set, but unless you began to catalogue them, you are hardly aware of the fact, for the eyes and power of the countenance overbalanced every physical defect. The crooked mouth and the large nose were forgotten and the whole face arrested the attention, and presently attracted all those whom she herself would have cared to attract. Her hands and feet were the smallest I ever saw. When one of the former was placed in mine, it was like the soft touch of a bird in the middle of my palm. The delicate long fingers had a peculiar fineness of sensation, which was one reason why all her handiwork, of whatever kind, writing, sewing, knitting, was so clear in its minuteness. She was remarkably neat in her whole personal attire, but she was dainty as to the fit of her shoes and gloves. I can well imagine that the grave, serious composure which, when I knew her, gave her face the dignity of an old Venetian portrait, was no acquisition of later years, but dated from that early age when she found herself in the position of an elder sister to motherless children. But in a girl only just entered on her teens, such an expression would be called, to use the country phrase, old-fashioned, and in 1831, the period of which I now write, we must think of her as a little, set, antiquated girl, very quiet in manners and very quaint in dress. For besides the influence exerted by her father's ideas concerning the simplicity of attire befitting the wife and daughters of a country clergyman, her aunt, on whom the duty of dressing her nieces principally devolved, had never been in society since she left Penzance eight or nine years before, and the Penzance fashions of that day were still quite dear to her heart. In January 1831, Charlotte was sent to school again. This time she went as a pupil to Miss W., who lived at Rowhead, a cheerful, roomy country house, standing a little apart in a field on the right of the road from Leeds to Huddersfield. 
Three tiers of old-fashioned semicircular bow windows run from basement to roof and look down upon a long green slope of pasture land, ending in the pleasant woods of Kirkley's St George Armitage's Park. Although Rowhead and Howarth are not twenty miles apart, the aspect of the country is as totally dissimilar as if they enjoyed a different climate. The soft curving and heaving landscape round the former gives a stranger the idea of cheerful airiness on the heights and of sunny warmth on the broad green valleys below. It is just such a neighbourhood as the monks loved, and traces of the old Plantagenet times are to be met with everywhere, side by side with the manufacturing interests of the West riding of today. There is the park of Kirkley's, full of sunny glades, speckled with black shadows of immemorial yew trees. The grey pile of building, formerly a house of professed ladies, the mouldering stone in the depth of the wood, under which Robin Hood is said to lie. Close outside the park, an old stone-gabled house, now a roadside inn, but which bears the name of the three nuns, and has a pictured sign to correspond. And this quaint old inn is frequented by fustian-dressed mill-hands from the neighbouring worsted factories, which strew the high road from Leeds to Huddersfield, and form the centres round which future villages gather. Such are the contrasts of the modes of living, and of times and seasons brought before the traveller on the great roads that traverse the West Riding. In no other part of England, I fancy, are the centres brought into such close, strange contact as in the district in which Rowhead is situated. Within six miles of Miss W.'s house, on the left of the road coming from Leeds, lie the remains of Howley Hall, now the property of Lord Cardigan, but formerly belonged to a branch of the Savars. Near to it is Lady Anne's well. Lady Anne, according to tradition, having been worried and eaten by wolves as she sat at the well, to which the indigo-dyed factory people from Burstall and Batley Woollen Mills would formerly repair on Palm Sunday, when the waters possess remarkable medicinal efficacy, and is still believed by some that they assume a strange variety of colours at six o'clock on the morning of that day. All round the lands held by the farmer who lives in the remains of Howley Hall are stone houses of today, occupied by the people who are making their living and their fortunes by the woollen mills that encroach upon and shoulder out the proprietors of the ancient halls. These are to be seen in every direction, picturesque, many gabled with heavy stone carvings of coats of arms for heraldic ornament, belonging to decayed families from whose ancestral lands field after field has been shorn away by the urgency of rich manufacturers pressing hard upon necessity. A smoky atmosphere surrounds these old dwellings of former Yorkshire squires, and blights and blackens the ancient trees that overshadow them. Cinder paths lead up to them, the ground round about is sold for building upon, but still the neighbours, though they subsist by a different state of things, remember that their forefathers lived in agricultural dependence upon the owners of these halls, and treasure up the traditions connected with the stately households that existed centuries ago. Take Oakwell Hall, for instance. It stands in a pasture field about a quarter of a mile from the high road, 
It is but that distance from the busy whir of the steam engines employed in the woollen mills at Burstall, and if you walk to it from Burstall Station about mealtime, you encounter strings of mill hands, blue with woollen dye, and cranching in hungry haste over the cinder paths bordering the high road. Turning off from this to the right, you ascend through an old pasture field and enter a short by-road called Bloody Lane, a walk haunted by the ghost of a certain Captain Bat, the reprobate proprietor of an old hall close by in the days of the Stuarts. From the Bloody Lane, overshadowed by trees, you come into the field in which Oakwell Hall is situated. It is known in the neighbourhood to be the place described as Field Head Shirley's residence. The enclosure in front, half court, half garden, the panelled hall, with the gallery opening into the bedchambers running round, the barbarous peach-coloured drawing-room, the bright lookout through the garden door upon the grassy lawns and terraces behind, where the soft-hooed pigeons still love to coo and strut in the sun, are described in Shirley. The scenery of that fiction lies close around. The real events which suggested it took place in the immediate neighbourhood. They show a bloody footprint in a bedchamber of Oakwell Hall, and tell a story connected with it, and with the lane by which the house is approached. Captain Bat was believed to be far away. His family was at Oakwell. When in the dusk, one winter evening, he came stalking along the lane, and through the hall and up the stairs into his own room, where he vanished. He had been killed in a duel in London that very same afternoon of December ninth, 1684. The stones of the hall formed part of the more ancient vicarage, which an ancestor of Captain Batts had seized in the troublous times for property, which succeeded the Reformation. This Henry Bat possessed himself of houses and money without scruple, and, at last, stole the great bell of Burstall Church, for which sacrilegious theft a fine was imposed on the land, and has to be paid by the owner of the hall to this day. But the Oakwell property passed out of the hands of the Bats at the beginning of the last century. Collateral descendants succeeded and left this picturesque trace of their having been. In the great hall hangs a mighty pair of stag's horns, and dependent from them a printed card, recording the fact that on the 1st of September, 1763, there was a great hunting match when this stag was slain, and that fourteen gentlemen shared in the chase, and dined on the spoil in that hall, along with Fairfax Fernley, Esquire, the owner. The fourteen names are given, doubtless, mighty men of yore. But, among them all, Sir Fletcher Norton, Attorney General, and Major General Birch were the only ones with which I had any association in 1855. Passing on from Oakwell, there lie houses right and left, which were well known to Miss Bronte when she lived at Rowhead as the hospitable homes of some of her schoolfellows. Lanes branch off for three or four miles to heaths and commons on the higher ground, which formed pleasant walks on holidays, and then 
comes the white gate into the field path leading to Rowhead itself. One of the bow-windowed rooms on the ground floor, with the pleasant lookout I have described, was the drawing room. The other was the schoolroom. The dining room was on one side of the door and faced the road. The number of pupils during the year and a half that Miss Bronte was there ranged from seven to ten, and as they did not require the whole of the house for their accommodation, the third story was unoccupied, except by the ghostly idea of a lady whose rustling silk gown was sometimes heard by the listeners at the foot of the second flight of stairs. The kind motherly nature of Miss W. and the small number of the girls made the establishment more like a private family than a school. Moreover, she was a native of the district immediately surrounding Roe Head, as were the majority of her pupils. Most likely, Charlotte Bronte, in coming from Haworth, came the greatest distance of all. E's home was five miles away. Two other dear friends, the Rose and Jessie York of Shirley, lived still nearer. Two or three came from Huddersfield, one or two from Leeds. I shall now quote from a valuable letter which I have received from Mary, one of these early friends, distinct and graphic in expression, as becomes a cherished associate of Charlotte Bronte's. The time referred to is her first appearance at Roe Head on January 19th, 1831. I first saw her coming out of a covered cart in very old-fashioned clothes and looking very cold and miserable. She was coming to school at Miss W's. When she appeared in the schoolroom, her dress was changed, but just as old. She looked a little old woman, so short-sighted that she always appeared to be seeking something, and moving her head from side to side to catch a sight of it. She was very shy and nervous, and spoke with a strong Irish accent. When a book was given to her, she dropped her head over it until her nose nearly touched it, and when she was told to hold her head up, up went the book after it, still close to her nose, so that it was not possible to help laughing. This was the first impression she made upon one of those whose dear and valued friend she was to become in later life. Another of the girls recalls her first sight of Charlotte. On the day she came standing by the schoolroom window, looking out on the snowy landscape and crying while all the rest were at play. E was younger than she, and her tender heart was touched by the apparently desolate condition in which she found the oddly dressed, odd-looking little girl that winter morning, as sick for home she stood in tears, in a new strange place among new strange people. Any over-demonstrative kindness would have scared the wild little maiden from Haworth, but E who is shadowed forth in the Caroline Halstone of Shirley, managed to win confidence and was allowed to give sympathy. To quote again from Mary's letter. We thought her very ignorant, for she had never learnt grammar at all, and very little geography. This account of her partial ignorance is confirmed by her other schoolfellows, but Miss W. was a lady of remarkable intelligence and of delicate, tender sympathy. She gave a proof of this in her first treatment of Charlotte. The little girl was well-read, but not well-grounded. Miss W. took her aside, and told her that she was afraid that she must place her in the second class for some time 
till she could overtake the girls of her own age in the knowledge of grammar, etc. But poor Charlotte received this announcement with so sad a fit of crying that Miss W.'s kind heart was softened and she wisely perceived that, with such a girl, it would be better to place her in the first class and allow her to make up by private study in those branches where she was deficient. She would confound us by knowing things that were out of our range altogether. She was acquainted with most of the short pieces of poetry that we had to learn by heart. She would tell us the authors, the poems they were taken from, and sometimes repeat a page or two, and tell us the plot. She had a habit of writing in italics, printing characters, and said she had learnt it by writing in their magazine. They brought out a magazine once a month, and wished it to look as like the print as possible. She told us a tale out of it. No one wrote in it, and no one read it but herself, her brother, and two sisters. She promised to show me some of these magazines, but retracted it afterwards, and would never be persuaded to do so. In our play hours, she sate, or stood still, with a book, if possible. Some of us once urged her to be on our side in a game at ball. She said she had never played and could not play. We made her try, but soon found that she could not see the ball, so we put her out. She took all our proceedings with pliable indifference, and always seemed to need a previous resolution to say no to anything. She used to go and stand under trees in the playground and say it was pleasanter. She endeavoured to explain this, pointing out the shadows, the peeps of the sky, etc. We understood but little of it. She said that at Cohen Bridge she used to stand in the burn on a stone to watch the water flow by. I told her she should have gone fishing, but she said she never wanted. She always showed physical feebleness in everything. She ate no animal food at school. It was about this time I told her she was very ugly. Some years afterwards I told her I thought I had been very impertinent. She replied, You did me a great deal of good, Polly so don't repent of it. She used to draw much better and more quickly than anything we had ever seen before, and knew much about celebrated pictures and painters. Whenever an opportunity offered of examining a picture or cut of any kind, she went over it piecemeal, with her eyes close to the paper, looking so long that we used to ask her what she saw in it. She could always see plenty, and explained it very well. She made poetry and drawing at least exceedingly interesting to me, and then I got the habit, which I have yet, of referring mentally to her opinion on all matters of that kind, along with any more, resolving to describe such and such things to her, until I start at the recollection that I never shall. To feel the full force of this last sentence, to show how steady and vivid was the impression which Miss Bronte made on those fitted to appreciate her, I must mention that the writer of this letter, dated January 18th, 1856, in which she thus speaks of constantly referring to Charlotte's opinion, has never seen her for eleven years, nearly all of which have been passed among strange scenes in a new continent at the Antipodes. We used to be furious politicians, as one could hardly help being in 1832. She knew the names of the two ministries, the one that had resigned, and the one that succeeded and passed the Reform Bill. She worshipped the Duke of Wellington, but said that Sir Robert Peel was not to be trusted. 
He did not act from principle like the rest, but from expediency. I, being of the furious radical party, told her, How could any of them trust one another? They are all of them rascals. Then she would launch into praises of the Duke of Wellington, referring to his actions, which I could not contradict, as I knew nothing about him. She said she had taken her interest in politics ever since she was five years old. She did not get her opinions from her father, that is, not directly, but from the papers, etc., he preferred. In illustration of the truth of this, I may give an extract from a letter to her brother, written from Rowhead, May 17th, 1832. Lately I had begun to think that I had almost lost all of the interest which I used formerly to take in politics, but the extreme pleasure I felt at the news of the reform bills being thrown out by the House of Lords, and the expulsion or resignation of Earl Grey, etc., convinced me that I have not as yet lost all my penchant for politics. I am extremely glad that Aunt has consented to take in Fraser's magazine, for, though I know from your description of its general contents, it will be rather uninteresting when compared with Blackwood. Still, it would be better than remaining the whole year without being able to obtain a sight of any periodical whatever, and such would assuredly be our case, as, in our little wild moorland village where we reside, there would be no possibility of borrowing a work of that description from a circulating library. I hope with you that the present delightful weather may contribute to the perfect restoration of our dear papa's health, and that it may give aunt pleasant reminiscences of the salubrious climate of her native place, etc. To return to Mary's letter. She used to speak of her two elder sisters, Maria and Elizabeth, who died at Cohen Bridge. I used to believe them to have been wonders of talent and kindness. She told me, early one morning, that she had just been dreaming, and she had been told that she was wanted in the drawing-room, and it was Maria and Elizabeth. I was eager for her to go on, and when she said there was no more, I said, but go on, make it out, I know you can. She said that she would not. She wished she had not dreamed, for it did not go nicely. They were changed. They had forgotten what they used to care for. They were very fashionably dressed, and began criticising the room, etc. This habit of making out interests for themselves that most children get, who have none in actual life, was very strong in her. The whole family used to make out histories, and invent characters and events. I told her sometimes they were like growing potatoes in a cellar. She said, sadly, yes, I know we are. Someone at school said she was always talking about clever people, Johnson, Sheridan, etc. She said, now you don't know the meaning of clever. Sheridan might be clever. Yes, Sheridan was clever. Scamps often are but Johnson hadn't a spark of cleverality in him. No one appreciated the opinion, but they made some trivial remark about cleverality, and she said no more. This is the epitome of her life. At our house, she had just as little chance of a patient hearing, for though not schoolgirlish, we were more intolerant. We had a rage for practicality, and laughed all poetry to scorn.
Neither she nor we had any idea but that our opinions were the opinions of all the sensible people in the world, and we used to astonish each other at every sentence. Charlotte, at school, had no plan of life beyond what circumstances made for her. She knew that she must provide for herself, and chose her trade, at least chose to begin it once. Her idea of self-improvement ruled her even at school. It was to cultivate her tastes. She always said there was enough of hard practicality and useful knowledge forced upon us by the necessity, and that the thing most needed was to soften and refine our minds. She picked up every scrap of information concerning painting, sculpture, poetry, music, etc., as if it were gold. What I have heard of her school days from other sources confirms the accuracy of the details in this remarkable letter. She was an indefatigable student, constantly reading and learning, with a strong conviction of the necessity and value of education, very unusual in a girl of fifteen. She never lost a moment of time, and seemed almost to grudge the necessary leisure for relaxation and play hours, which might be partly accounted for by the awkwardness in all games occasioned by her shortness of sight. Yet, in spite of these unsociable habits, she was a great favourite with her schoolfellows. She was always ready to try and do what they wished, though not sorry when they called her awkward and left her out of their sports. Then, at night, she was an invaluable storyteller, frightening them almost out of their wits as they lay in bed. On one occasion, the effect was such that she was led to scream out aloud, and Miss W., coming upstairs, found that one of the listeners had been seized with violent palpitations in consequence of the excitement produced by Charlotte's story. End of chapter 6, part 1